And so I think in theory, the buy buy and hold, buy property a year, let's say every year for 10 years can work, but you've got to be really, really mindful of what suburbs you choose. Um, negative cash flow is, is obviously a big deal. Don't buy it just for negative gearing, i.e. claiming it on tax, that can be very dangerous. This is the Think Big Property Podcast, where Nyang earns means from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has means of questions. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of buying, renovating and holding against buying, renovating and selling as well as diving into some of our personal experiences with hidden costs and GST when buying properties and what to look out for as buyers. Nyang and I will be discussing the different strategies for finding deals based on our personal experiences as investors. I suppose there's a lot of ways for, for different ways to find deals and also execute deals and whether you're going to hold it or sell it. I think one of the most common ways that people do when they look for a property is they look at let's say a buy, reno and hold uh, and I, I know I've done that before and sometimes they'll do a buy, reno, sell and sometimes they'll sell it without um, intentionally uh, originally buying it to sell but sometimes you know time passes and they've got a bit too much debt or they want to access some cash. So you know, what are your thoughts there Tyrone? Have you, You've done a fair bit of buy, reno, sell, buy, reno, hold. Uh, what, what's your preference on this? Yeah, I, I'm not really much of a fan of, of selling properties unless I need to. Um, I, I'm sort of the long-term kind of investor who wants to buy these properties and just hold on to them for as long as I can because I know that over time property doubles in prices, you know, it takes 7 to 10 years or so. And if you do the, I guess, the strategy behind actually purchasing with, you know, the intention that you will actually make money when you buy rather than waiting and hoping and praying that it will go up, then you actually already have, hopefully anyway, purchased a property that is already profitable from day one. Um, there are also ways that we can actually add value, which is what I've done to a few of the properties that I have and that can also increase the equity as well. And over time, you know, property prices, as I said, double in value. And I've got a residential property which has doubled in value over the last 10 years and I haven't done anything to it. And I think that's the thing. Like if you sell it, unless you have to, um, then you continue to capture that, that growth and that growth allows you to be able to withdraw more equity out and then use that equity to leapfrog to the next property or do other things with it. Otherwise, once you sell it and you have to pay down that debt and depending on what you want to do as well, if you're looking to, I guess, retire and you need to actually use this income for, for living off, then it might be a strategy there. So as we said, there's no one strategy that fits all, but um, it's basically just talking from experience and what we think has worked. So what do you think on that side of things, Nyang? Yeah, I think oftentimes my answer to that is it depends, right? It depends because capital growth, you might say it doubles every seven to 10 years, but it's very, very specific to certain areas as well. I know you're from Sydney and capital growth there is quite prolific. Um, it goes up a lot and it also can come down a lot. I know between 17 and 19, 2017, 2019, the market pulled back significantly. So I think I think let's zoom out a bit is that depending on what your outcome is and how much energy you've got and how, much, uh, act, how active you are in the marketplace. Uh, look, I've got clients have done the buy, reno and hold scenario. I think they got up to 10 properties and 
in the areas that they were in, various areas in Queensland and New South Wales, they just didn't experience capital growth. Uh, and, and all they experienced was an increase of debt as they refinanced their equity, pulled that equity out and bought more properties. And so I think in theory, the buy buy and hold, buy property a year, let's say every year for 10 years can work, but you've got to be really, really mindful of what suburbs you choose. Um, negative cash flow is is obviously a big deal. Don't buy it just for negative gearing, i.e. claiming it on tax. That can be very dangerous. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, it, it's a balance. I, I think, like I said before, if people are very, very active and they're doing one, two, three property deals a year, uh, buy and sell can work because then it becomes a business. That, that's the thing. Is it an investment or is it a business for you? And I think that's the key thing. If you're only doing you know, one or two property transactions every one to five years, I think buy and hold is a great strategy. You know, you're not gearing up with too much debt and you're not um, exposing yourself to too much uh, volatility or change in the market because you're just essentially holding it for the long term. But if you're transacting on a lot of property, let's say um, two or three properties a year, even you know one property a month, even you know buying twelve properties a year and holding them at five hundred grand a piece is not sustainable. So I think the key question is: is it an investment or is it a business? And then we can you know basically choose uh, which out of the two you go. So what are your thoughts on that, Tyrone? Yeah, totally. I think that's exactly right. Like maybe we could sort of talk it about from these two points of views. One starting off with investment and then the other one talking about business and then we can talk about perhaps the, the pros and cons, the strategy that we can use to use these strategies either to buy, rent and sell for uh, potentially a investment strategy point of view and also a buy, rent and hold investment strategy because they both work in, in both instances, both for investment and business and I guess from, from my I guess experience working on say buying reno and hold uh, from an investment point of view that has actually helped because I know that yes I've had to put money up front into a particular property I've been, I've been working on a, a property at the moment that is pretty much finished renovations which is still got a few minor little things like adding a heater uh, changing some of the or actually even adding range wood but just changing a slight few things but most of it has been done and I'll give you a little bit of background as I've been talking about, I've got a commercial property down in Victoria and that commercial property is a mixed use actually. So that, that's got two units up the top and three re, uh, retail stores down the bottom. I had been spending the last probably few months or so with uh, remotely with a tradesperson and also a plumber and also electrician to renovate the top part and we've actually converted parts of it originally from offices all over into two separate units and those units have a new bathroom, new kitchen, uh, also additional room now so from one bedroom to a two bedroom and that whole process was a full renovation upstairs. Once we did that, I'm, I've increased the rent from originally $200 a week from upstairs to $560 a week now and both tenants are now you know, fully occupying in there. I had to put in a roughly about, if I added it up, it's about 40k or so to actually do splitting these into two um, units because we also had to do rewiring of some of the electrician to get them on switchboards, separating the gas meters, uh, the power, etc. So I guess in that point of view, I'm like, okay, long term wise, I'm planning to hold on to this property because it's positive cash flow, went from a 7% yield up to 10%, and it's a great investment, you know, to to put this one in place. It is in more of a regional town and that's the reason why that particular property has um, a high yield but then I know that if we're because it's a commercial property and I'm adding value to it, I can actually manage and increase 
I'll manufacture the equity quite easily. So in about say maybe six months down the track, I'll probably go back to the bank and say, look, you know, this is the kind of rental I'm getting and uh, how much do you think this valuation would be worth and it should probably increase between anywhere for 100 to 200,000 equity in that property. So that's an investment, you know, for me, from my point of view and, the, and from my experience that I've been doing. What, what do you think about that on that? Yeah, look, I think it's definitely positive what you're doing and insightful and I know that you've got a fair bit of experience with other resi stuff in the past. So that's definitely exciting and uh, good on you for doing that. I think just being mindful and, and this is for g- general listeners out there is that I think um, yeah, the buy and hold strategy can work like I said. I like to prefer to, to balance uh, the buy, reno, sell with the buy, reno, hold, balance and do potentially both of them because um, there's definitely benefits in both. Like you said, with, with the hold, you get that capital growth and uh, you're not, you don't expose yourself to a lot of transactional costs. I, I think let's talk about you know, from a buy, reno, sell. Let's say you did that to that property. I, I do think that buy, reno, hold has a lot of positives versus buy, reno, sell. Like let, let's talk about transactional costs. When you're selling, you've got agent's commission and, and then you've got to pay uh, capital gains tax as well. If it's and all the stamp duties as well and all those additional costs that go to the government. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, when you're buying in reno or, buy, or buying, selling, buy and hold, you're going to pay the stamp duty anyway. But yeah, when you're selling, there's going to be additional transactional costs there, uh, additional taxes. Uh, if you're selling vacant land or brand new dwellings like townhouses or apartments that may in, in require paying GST as well. So, Buying and selling versus buying and holding can be a lot more transactionally expensive um, and, and a lot more transactional costs for not that much more value. But uh, the holding uh, side of things, I find for myself, let's say um, you wanted to hold five properties, um, there's a couple of things you want to be mindful of is obviously serviceability. Serviceability, so that every property you hold, um, it crystallizes your serviceability. So what I mean by that is, let's say you buy a property and you borrow five hundred grand, you know that you can't use that five hundred grand to go buy another property. You have to keep stacking on top and top and top. So five properties, five hundred grand debt each. Let's say you're up to two and a half mil. Um, so the, the holding side of things, one, it crystallizes your um, capital as well as your debt. So um, versus if you were to sell, let's say you did five transactions, sold three kept two or sold two, kept three, um, you get the best of both worlds because when you sell, yes, you do have to pay tax, yes, you have to pay agent's commission, but you do get that cash out. If the market goes down, you don't lose any of that equity. If the market goes up, you already got the money in the bank. So I think yeah, it is a balance between the two because selling, um, yes, you do pay um, agent's commission and tax and, and things like that and that's part of making money through any business. Um, it, it's just that with, with property I think I love about it is you have options like you know, if you run a fruit shop or if you you know sold shoes at a shop or you sold paintings um, a lot of stock that people have it doesn't generate income you know if you buy and sell cars you're not going to make income from holding a car unless it's a very uh, rare Ferrari or something so uh, it's going to experience, experience appreciation of that stock so I think that's a beautiful thing um, the other key thing is negative cash flow if you're holding it if you're holding something, you've got negative cash flow, you might be waiting for the capital growth. And I think positive cash flow is very important to maintain the being able to service it and um, not have to dip money into your pocket. Because if you're losing $500 on a property every time you buy one every month, five properties, that's two and a half grand. That really ties you to your job. So don't get me wrong, um, you know, positive cash flow has a, a place and hold 
or holding property has a place, but that's why I like to do both because you get the balance. I call it left leg, right leg, where one leg balances you in a uh, buy and hold and capital growth and cash flow play. Uh, I'm doing uh, the, the mini boarding houses that we've talked about previously as a hold play. I've created uh, equity through the land and then uh, super positive cash flow through the build of uh, five tenants per house times two. Right. So, uh, whereas my 30 lot subdivision, I'm selling everything because holding 30 vacant blocks of land is an absolute hole in the pocket and it's a disaster. So, um, I think it's at the end of the day, the power of intention, what your intention is and what your resources are because not everybody's going to be doing development while they're working full time. A lot of the listeners, when you agree Tyrone would be mainly uh, PAYG, working for someone else, wanting to maybe, you know, quit your job down the track. Um, but looking at different ways and different methodologies. Totally. And I can relate to that experience because I still work full time but I'm also doing a similar play. It's just funny how we're talking about it now because it's kind of made me think, okay, my strategies are very similar to what you're doing. I, I've still got my commercial properties and residential properties which I purchase, buy, reno and hold. Those are my hold strategy or hold play and then I'm doing the joint venture partners with um, the other people that are doing the development. So. You know, with those ones, those are pretty much buy, reno, and sell, and that's that's been the strategy there. Or buy, subdivide, and sell. And uh, yeah, I've had those couple of deals as well. That um, one of them's returned it back, a nice twenty percent return, and the other one's returned back, or hasn't returned back yet. But um, we're going to be getting a return back on that one soon. So that's exactly yeah. Now I think about it, it is the best of both worlds because if you don't have those two, one, you know, it, it's good to be able to just buy you know, and, and rent and hold but then at the same time as you said, you need that kind of cash to be able to inject back into these properties to pay them off over time so that way you can also leverage and, you know, continue to grow and I, I like that. I think that's that's great and it's just so important that we talk about it because a lot of people just sort of just go down one path and it's good to focus on one path but at the same time, you've got to also understand that, you know, having a combination of best of both worlds makes it um, the sort of better or ideal strategy to be able to help you grow faster as well too. Otherwise, you kind of get stuck. Yeah. And I think when you are a developer, um, let's say you don't have a job and you've transitioned to being a developer, sometimes you want to hold stuff but you can't from a cash flow point of view. I think that's the biggest concept is, is cash flow. So, uh, I, I learned the strategy that we're talking about in terms of build some, sell some, keep some from various colleagues of mine and the sell some part uh, was very positive to reduce debt and access and uh, liquidate and be able to access capital as well as profit whereas the hold some is definitely for a potential long-term cash flow and potential um, capital growth there. So, I, I think you know, people focus on one or the other. If you want to take a, another step back is let's say someone works for someone else, you're an employee and then you have investment property. So, when you're the employee and work for someone else, essentially your job is the cash flow source. So, instead of buying and selling houses and you um, to make profit from that, you're going to work and making five grand a month, 10 grand a month, something like that um, to keep that cash flow going. Whereas, when, you're, when you don't have a job and especially when you're starting out and you haven't got the passive income through the properties, um, yeah, that's where you're needing to transact on those properties to access those profits so you can eat. Uh, down the track, once you create a portfolio and you've got 50, 100, 200, 300 grand passive income, then you know that um, you're at that next level, that, that buying and selling isn't 
as urgent, but what you will find is that you'll you probably want to do bigger deals. You might want to you know, renovate blocks of flats or do five lot subdivisions because then at that stage, your skill set should be to the point where you know, you're able to command bigger projects, uh, project manage and fund bigger projects and, and extract bigger profits as well. But you know, everyone's got their own skill set. Coming up after the break, we discuss key costs and transactional issues when buying property. I wish that our land was like business in some ways what you're talking about like selling, buying and selling light bulbs or printers because there's no land tax when you um, yeah, buy and sell paper, buy and sell TV, right? But I still got to pay land tax. Uh, it's a big cost in, in projects, especially as they take longer. We talk about GST and where to expect it. That's why I suggest people think big and start small because these numbers and calculations can get quite intensive. Uh, and when you're doing a one into two or even just a buy, reno, sell, you'll get more aware of what the costs are, margin schemes, uh, GST. We discuss when it might be time to hire an accountant. It's very important to have an accountant on your team very early on the piece so that you can negotiate and, and look at and basically navigate you know, the, the opportunities there. And at the end of the day, we accept it. It's just a cost of doing business. So that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Nyong and I move on to discuss some of the key costs and hidden fees associated with property development which you as buyers might not be aware of. Look, firstly, Tyrone and I were just declaring that we're not accountants, we're not financial professionals in any way. It's just from our experience and everyone's circumstances are different. You know, my wife is an accountant and I've spoken to her many at length about different transactions where some things that apply to me don't apply to other people. So please just check with your accountant before you, um, you go out and do anything because um, yeah, we can't be providing uh, yeah, that kind of advice. But look, for example, this uh, 30 lot subdivision that I'm doing plus other subdivisions that I've done, you know, in my experience and my accountant said to me and it's generally applicable is when you're producing brand new stock, brand new stock you have to pay GST. So uh, the only flip side of that from a positive is that any of the GST that I pay from a um, construction point of view, civil works, buildings, um, fees to consultants, uh, I get to offset that against any GST I have to pay. So that's that is one uh, compliment or, or one um, concession that does work. So definitely GST as a developer is something you cannot avoid, and, and it's crazy even with the um, the new laws. And I think it's Australia wide is that at settlement uh, the buyer has to withhold seven percent of your sales price, right, to account for and pay the ATO GST in advance. So before. Um, yeah, before what would happen is you'd sell a block of land, do your bass, and then pay the GST after you've done your bass three months later. But obviously, there was a lot of people screwing the system over with they'd uh, what called they'd phoenix the, the company, they'd dissolve it and not pay the ATO the GST, which is not fair for everybody because you know, I'd pay my fair pay, fair part of GST um, as much as we whinge and complain about it, it. It's just part of doing business, right? So um, we, we live in this nice country. You have to do that. That's true and I, I thought I probably want to sort of maybe jump up a little bit high on a macro perspective and how it works in a business. So, it doesn't have to be in property but it could be just operating a business as buying and selling products or operating as a service 
And I guess when you look at it from that point of view, every product that we sell, if you're turning over, I think it was 75000 as a minimum a year, you start to pay GST on top of your, your goods and services. So if you look at it from that point of view, every business does pay GST. It's just that we've taken property, whether it be subdivision lots or a, a brand new you know, house or townhouse build, those are actually the products and I guess you're adding an extra 10% on top of that. Is that correct to say from a business perspective? Yeah, so it, essentially it works out to be a one eleventh. So yeah, one eleventh. So when you're working backwards, it's one eleventh of the sales price. Um, there are things like the what we call the margin scheme, uh, which I'm not going to go into, which allows you to adjust that um, a, a bit. But you know, I wish that uh, land was like business in some ways. What you're talking about, like selling, buying and selling light bulbs or printers, because there's no land tax when you um, yeah, buy and sell paper, buy and sell TV, right? But I still got to pay land tax. Uh, it's a big cost in, in projects, especially as they take longer. Second thing is no stamp duty in business when you're buying and selling printers or tables or cups or mobile phones, right? So I hear what you're saying, <laughs> but as a developer, we're getting stung all over the place. Uh, agents commission, you know, that, that's no different to any marketing cost that you've got. I, I'm happy to pay that and people work hard to do that um, and, and I'm not, yeah, against that at all. So, but I think yeah, the other things that I mentioned is definitely land tax. There's just lots of fees that you pay council and the and the government to get things approved, uh, and those timeframes, you know, are very very long at times as well. Um, and like I said, yes, stamp duty, uh, legals on the way in, mortgage registration fees, um, holding costs. Obviously, if you're going to borrow money, there's going to be holding costs there. Um, legals. I'm not sure. Is there anything else I missed there, Tyrone? I don't think you've missed anything. I'm just curious in terms of say a percentage-wise, how much does that take and need to be factored in during development because there's quite a number of things as you said there, legal, stamp duties, land tax, <laughs> uh, you know, council fees. That's quite a number of fees just in itself. Like, I wonder how much that accounts for roughly. Oh, look, uh, let's let's just put it this way. Let's just put it this way. And, and every council is different. There's also a thing called um, council contributions. Um, so, and every state is different. I know in Queensland, for example, across the board, roughly it's twenty nine thousand dollars. My land that I'm selling is an average price of two fifty to two seventy. Let's say so. That's more than ten percent of the purchase or sale price I'm paying to the um, the council. Is right? that so is that per block, not just the overall deal? Per block. Wow. Per block, right. And, and I know that in Victoria and New South Wales, uh, it might be different. It might be, I think, as per valuation uh, in, in different states, but that's an example in, in Queensland there. Um, also, yeah, that GST, I reckon it's probably 3 to 5%, uh, probably yeah, closer to 5% of the net actual cost. So 15%, just at that example alone, is of transactional costs that the buyer is paying um, when they buy that property, right? And, and like you said, you, you look at developers and go, oh, you know what, they should be driving Bentleys. Um, and if we didn't have to pay those fees, I would be driving a Bentley. Um, yeah, it's just uh, crazy, crazy, crazy. So let's just say, are we talking about these costs already incurred inside the actual block? So say, for example, the block's 220, would that cost be already absorbed in that 220 or would that be charged on top of that block? Yeah, that's already included. By the time it goes to the market and let's say we sell it for 220, all those fees and charges are already accounted for 
internally as an expense. So the um, contributions itself would have been paid already as a hard cost in terms of we've already paid that to the council before we can actually get the title. Uh, however, the uh, GST is um, extracted or taken out or paid to the ATO once we sell it. So um, one is a cost that we pay out, the other one is a post-settlement uh, cost, if that makes sense. So it actually doesn't come out of your pocket, it just comes out of your gross revenue proceeds. Yeah, gotcha. So basically, we have to factor in, you know, in terms of to be able to make a profit profit on these deals, um, you've got to also factor in the, the cost that you purchased the block at and, you know, whether that be 100 to 150,000 and then you take away the sales cost, which is 220 or so the, the revenue that's come in, which is 220, for example, and you minus say another 15%. So your margin is between, uh, you know, the 150 to, to 200,000. Uh, probably even less now when you actually do all those calculations. So you're actually playing with a small margin here then actually and that's why there's, there's got to be volume for this to actually work. Oh look, absolutely and that's why the fundamentals that I talk about in the principles of the course is you, you make your money when you buy and that's why I suggest people think big and start small because these numbers and calculations can get quite intensive. Uh, and when you're doing a one into two or even just a buy, reno, sell, you'll get more aware of what the costs are, margin schemes, uh, GST. Because for, for example, let's say you do a development, a one into two, you keep the existing house and cut off the backyard. You know, to make it even more complicated, in my experience and my clients is that the house, because it's existing, there's no GST. And then, but the vacant block of land, might have GST payable, right? So then you go, well, okay, one product has GST applicable, the other one doesn't. How do you work that out? How much do you pay GST? And that's where you got to bring an accountant in to work your way through that. So um, like I said, without offering financial advice, that's where it starts getting complicated, but you know, it allows you to essentially save some money on the GST by retaining some existing product. Um, sometimes, like, like for example, I'll give you an example. I've got a double block on the market at the moment, 600 square meters. It's approved to sell. Um, so it's approved for two blocks of land. So two 300 square meter blocks. I've got an approval for it and it's on the market. And I spoke to my wife who's the accountant and I said, well, look, if I knock the house down and I sell the blocks of land, will I pay GST or am I better off selling it with the house on it? And from her point of view, selling it just with the house on it, existing just with a paper approval is going to be a lot better for me. Um, yeah, it's just an investment. I've held it for more than 12 months. I'm going to get a better tax position from that than knocking the house down and selling two vacant blocks of land um, for, for um, from that point of view because I've got to pay tax obviously because I'm making money and then potentially I've got to pay GST on the vacant blocks of land. So it's a double whammy in, in that particular instance. I've just put it on the market uh, as is as an investment property with an approval in place. If people choose to develop it, that's really up to them. So say for example, that vacant block of land, you decide to build a brand new house on that, would you have to pay GST on that? So um, like I said, I'm not an accountant. So in my scenario, I've got uh, 600 square meters with an existing house on it because it's got an existing house and I'm selling it, that's fine. But if I do knock that house down, subdivide the blocks and build two new houses, is that your question? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I reckon you would have to pay GST, wow. obviously. Okay. I don't know, but I reckon yeah. you would because, um, because our brand new stock, if I rented them out, then maybe it's a different story and uh, down the track, sold them as investment properties. But uh, I think there's a big word that the uh, tax guys talk about which is intention what's your intention are you planning to sell it are you planning to keep it 
Yeah, that's definitely an accounting type of question, but that's fascinating. <laughs> so many different strategies to, to think about actually because this this actually comes back down to, yeah, as you said, the intentions behind what you want to do with it and if you actually have that clearly thought out at the beginning and worked out with an accountant the strategies behind how much tax implications you have and how much profit you're going to make, you got to figure out which one's going to be the better deal or the better way to go about Exactly, exactly. And a lot of these costs are unavoidable um, and that's why I reckon it's very important to have an accountant on your team very early on the piece so that you can negotiate and, and look at and basically navigate you know, the, the opportunities there. And at the end of the day, we accept it. It's just a cost of doing business. We've got to put that into the feasibility and when there's a price that we offer a, a seller, um, that that is the price based on our calculations. It's not because you know we're, we're trying to squeeze an extra margin out of it. Um, most of the time, you know, you'd be lucky to get, you know, 22, maybe 18% on a bigger subdivision. But my big one, I, my fees, I started off with about 29% based on the fact the project's taken an extra year or two longer. Uh, we're probably down to 18% with holding costs, extra fees and charges, extra requirements from council, uh, less blocks that we'd anticipated. Um, so it, it's just the way it is. That's why having those fat margins are so important. And, and coming back to our buy and hold conversation uh, previously is that when you're buying and holding, you don't have as many transactional costs, not as many moving parts. Uh, you've got a tenant, which is your income. Um, and so you don't have to worry too much. If you've gotten it wrong and you paid too much initially, as long as it's not eating its own head off too much with negative gearing, you know, holding it is not uh, a, a life uh, life or death situation. Whereas if you've got a development site, you've paid too much and you're not aware of 30 grand a block here, 10 grand a block there, you know, that, and you've got several blocks that can multiply very, very quickly. And especially if it's vacant, um, yeah, that can eat into your cash flows very, very quickly and you can be losing money uh, quite rapidly. So, one sort of more of an active strategy and one sort of a passive strategy and I guess when you when you look at the two, it's good to sort of have both because one can sort of weather the other if things don't go well. I mean, ideally, the situation is we want positively to have everything go well, you know, for the development and also for a portfolio that you grow these properties but at the end of the day, um, if you want to sort of accelerate your growth and to actually purchase more properties, you know, build them, sell them keep some you know it, it probably is a strategy that needs to be in, in full consideration before actually going and jumping into that because it can definitely help but there's also some negatives which was kind of also explained and I think it's been a great open conversation about this today because it's kind of given two different points of view because you know you've done it on a larger scale you know I've been doing it on a smaller scale and there's there's you know pros and cons to both. Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into the pressing questions we've all asked at some point in our journey. How do you determine the market value? How to determine what to offer? How do you find the deals? Because generally, I don't know about you there, Tyrone, but when I was starting out, I was 21 and we'll discuss the interstate investments. If you're going out of state, whether it's flying to Sydney or Melbourne or Newcastle or Hunter Valley, you definitely got to investigate what the market's doing because there's markets within markets. We talk in depth about different ways to find the best deals. One is through agents, 
who've listed the property and then there's a property owners directly. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's a very much a part of a wholesome strategy and a um, universal strategy, holistic strategy, not just a focus only on owners directly. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast.